the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and I have to start with a quick apologies. I didn't get out a podcast last week because I broke my elbow, and uh, everything in my life went a little haywire because of that. Uh, But I'm on the mend now. I have the cast off, and the night before I got the cast off, I I went out to celebrate. I went to a press event uh, at a beautiful new bar where a bunch of authors talked about their upcoming books. And one of the most compelling presentations was from my next guest. His name is Brian Friedman, and he has a book called Crushed, How a Changing Climate is Altering the Way We Drink. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Thanks for having me, Pauline. I hope you're feeling a little bit better. <laughs> I am. I am. I'm going to be doing PT starting today, so it, it's I'm on the healing path. Good. Uh, yeah. So what inspired you to write this book? You know, one of the big perks of what I do for a living, uh, which is writing about wine and spirits and travel and food is I spend an inordinate amount of time having lunches and dinners and tastings with winemakers and spirit distillers and growers of the grains and the grapes. And over the years, more and more frequently, I kept on hearing about how climate change is affecting them. And you know, all of Mm. us hear about climate change as it pertains to our food system. There have been thousands of books, most likely, written about how climate change is affecting what's on our table from a food standpoint. But when I started doing some digging, I couldn't find any books that were written for consumers, right, about Hmm. how these amazing beverages that we love are being affected. And I thought, this is, you know, this is a multi, multi multi-billion dollar a year industry in the U.S. It's going to be hitting close to three quarters of a trillion dollars worldwide in the next several years. And this is, you know, this is right in the crosshairs of climate change. So I wanted to tell the story. And there are so many stories to tell. I know it a bit from the wine point of view, because just this fall, I was in Burgundy in France. And because the grapevines have budded early because of weird climate patterns, and then the buds have been killed by frost, they didn't have uh, harvests for several years. And so Burgundian wines are getting much more expensive. What other parts of the world are are changing in terms of wine? Let's discuss that first. And also, what do people do if they want to go on a wine vacation and wine tasting? Are there certain regions that are going to be better going forward? So many good questions. So let me, I, I want to address <laughs> the first thing that you said about what you saw in Burgundy. And by the way, Lucky you for going to Burgundy. It's a great uh-huh. part of the world. It was world, amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, so every time I go there, I just want to drink all the Burgundy and leave, you know, nothing left for anybody else. But that's another issue. So, you know, <laughs> what you're saying is happening all over the place where because of these less cold winters, budding is happening earlier. And then these freak freeze events happen. And this reminds yeah. me of something that a producer in Texas Hill Country told me uh, last autumn. And she said to me, Brian, it's not so much about global warming as it is about global weirding. And I Uh, love that idea because, you know, as temperatures are certainly going up, we can't argue that. The science tells us that. But there are so many ancillary effects of that 
including less warm, less cold winters. And then, you know, these these weather events happen that we don't expect. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, now, the the uh, the question is, uh, what other parts of the world are experiencing these things? Well, I, I'm sure all parts of the world yeah. are experiencing these things. But if somebody wants to have a wine tasting vacation today, mm. I mean, I also was in um, uh, Healdsburg and I met a, a winemaker who actually had just started his winery. And unlike everybody else in Healdsburg, he was growing Cabernet. Hmm. Everybody else there did Pinot because Pinot, but he felt because of climate change, Pinot needs, I guess, warm days and cool nights, whereas Cabernet can have warmer temperatures all around. And he was the very first there uh, to be changing his strategy. Are you seeing a lot of changes in strategy? We're going to see some changes in strategy, certainly. There was a great article written a couple of weeks ago by a colleague of mine, and and he made a great point. He said, you know, you're sort of delusional to think that if in 100 or 200 years, the same grape varieties that we know and love from certain specific places now are without question going to be the ones that are just as important in a century or two, right? I mean, that's mm. that's not likely. Things are changing. Now, are we likely to see, you know, uh, Cabernet replacing Pinot Noir in Sonoma, you know, in the next couple of decades? I, I strongly doubt that, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see more and more people planting Cab, just like in Napa, for example. Uh, other grape varieties, people are starting to experiment with them. Cab huh. in Napa is still one of the greatest wines in the world, and it will continue to be, but things are shifting and experiments are happening. You know, you ask about wine vacations, and and I love this, Pauline, yeah. because let's be honest, one of the best ways to see the world is through the lens of a great glass of wine, right? Because Absolutely. Wine, yes. wine to me, what I love about my job is not just you know, I got into it because I love wine itself and I grew up with it. But what what I ultimately learned and what I love almost even more than that is that wine is the ultimate lens for understanding language, culture, religion, geology, geography, all of these wonderful things and now climate change. So wine vacations are some of my favorite things to do. Now, uh, strong recommendations for where to go. If you want to see what's happening at the bleeding edge of how people are dealing with climate change in the wine industry, I would say go to an ancient wine producing country, go to Israel. Uh, you know, huh. yes, I was there uh, researching for the book in the summer of 2021. I, this was like in that wonderful sweet spot right before the Delta variant came around. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, we were all vaxxed, no Delta yet, got to yeah. Israel. And, you know, I had previously been there on a wine tasting trip in 2012, seeing the quality of the wine, which was still very good in 2012, it has accelerated a thousandfold. And it's now some of the most exciting wine in the world. And why is this? Because they are really working towards this idea, the best producers, of uh, incorporating this idea of an entire ecosystem into the vineyards, right? Huh. Uh, and and do you remember those old postcards that would be these perfectly straight lines of vines with nothing growing between them, marching off into a distant horizon? Sure. Yeah, of course. It was beautiful. That's also terrible for Mother Nature, right? Huh. Mother Nature hates a vacuum. 
right? Anybody who's, you know, ever raked leaves or weeded a garden knows that Mother Nature gets rid of that hard work very quickly because it hates a vacuum. And there's this one agronomist. Her name is Michal Ackerman. She's also the CEO of Tabor Winery. Wonderful wines. And she sort of had this, this realization years ago that, you know, this is this is not nature, these perfect rows with nothing between them. This, is, this isn't helping my vines. It's not helping me produce the best fruit, which consequently meant that, you know, she could theoretically produce even better wine if she allowed that whole ecosystem to come back to her vineyards, right? Hmm, so she sure. did that. And when I was there, Pauline, it was amazing. I mean, the, the soil was crawling with healthy insect life. And then there was, you know, there were, there were uh, nitrogen fixing plants uh, and grasses and legumes between the vines because that huh. helps the roots. And then you have to wow. use less fertilizer and chemicals. And then fascinating, she has an owl on her label. I said to her like, Michal, what's, why an owl? I don't get it. Right. And she laughed and she said, the reason we have the owl is because once the owls naturally came back to the vineyards, that meant that their prey species had come and their prey species had come and they had brought back a whole healthy natural ecosystem. And the wines are absolutely stunning as a result. So I would say, wow. absolutely go to Israel. I would say, go to South Africa, right? South Africa uh -huh. is such a fascinating place in general. And the well, wine world. Yeah. And before you go into that, I mean, Cape Town, a couple of years ago, it was publicly announced that they had run out of water. Yeah. They seem to have fixed that problem since, but they they seem to be the poster child for, for uh, global uh, climate change. I, I wrote about that in the book. So the book is divided into eight chapters, and each one tells the stories of the people in eight individual places around the world. It's It's story-driven, right? And- right. My chapter on South Africa, I focus on this gentleman named Johan Reineke. And Johan talks extensively about what was happening. I think they called it day zero or something like that. And this was the day that they were going to run out of a municipal water supply, which right, is absolutely right. terrifying. Terrifying. Uh, they were having to collect the water, like shower in buckets and save that water to then mm. use that maybe to flush a toilet only when you had to. Um, right. And these are really scary things. And the South African wine industry has really made great strides, like in so many other places around the world. But they've really been notable uh, for becoming more uh, more a, a healthy part of the environment as opposed to manipulating the environment in an overly aggressive manner to facilitate mm. the growth of grapevines. And again, what I found around the world is that the more natural of an environment that these vines grow in, the healthier they are, the better the fruit is, and the better that liquid in the glass is ultimately going to be. So sure. wine travel right now, seeing this firsthand, it's not only fascinating, but let's be honest, as you can speak from Burgundy, it's so delicious, right? And you can also- Oh, absolutely. There's air quotes here. It's research. You're doing research when you're tasting like five <laughs> or six wine a day. Yes, but you know, it it still does come down to the, wa the, the water. Uh, I was recently in Northern California up in the Redwood Empire at Red Redwoods National Park, where I learned that 
the redwood trees actually probably aren't in danger because they get 50% of their water from fog. Mm. Uh, they get it through through the air, which I thought was extraordinary. Are you seeing other ways of dealing with water crises in the wine industry? And then I want to talk about other types of spirits. Sure. So, you know, in my chapter on Bordeaux, uh, I focus on a wonderful producer on the right bank in Saint-Emilion called Chateau La Segue. And Chateau La Segue, in 2009, like so many of their neighbors, they lost a significant percentage of their crop because of this horribly timed hailstorm. Huh. And it turned out, though, that the vines that survived best and that were able to not just recuperate for that year, but for subsequent years, were the vines that were older, that were hmm. farmed in a more organic and sustainable manner, which meant that their roots went down further, which meant ah. that they had better access to the underlying water table as opposed to just relying on irrigation. So all hmm. of these things, when I first got yeah. into this line of work professionally in the early 2000s, right? Oh, five, oh, six. I remember having conversations with friends and we would hear about these rumors of organic wines and sustainable wines. And, and we all sort of laughed, right? I'm embarrassed to say now. And we said, boy, that's an interesting marketing gimmick, huh? What are they going to do next? <laughs> and it turns right. out it's not just better for the people who are consuming them and the people who are working in the vineyards and the wineries, but it's also better for the vines and for the health of the environment from an irrigation standpoint, from a chemical sure. input standpoint. So all these things matter. So you're, you're talking about wines that aren't, when I think organic wines, I think ones where yeast hasn't been added. So they naturally ferment. And frankly, I don't like that flavor as much. It's To me, it's a more acidic type of wine usually than what I like. Uh, but you're talking more about the growing techniques, not so much what happens in the fermentation process. Correct. And you can still have uh, organic wines where yeast has been added. It has to be specific type of yeast. There's all huh. kinds of other stuff that you can add. Uh, I think what you're talking about, these are these are naturally or spontaneously fermented wines, right? And I know exactly that flavor. It's almost that sourness you get from sourdough sometimes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Not my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Although let's, you know, there are more and more great ones being produced out there. It's really just a matter of of finding them. As as more and more producers start experimenting and getting deeper uh, into the world of organics, biodynamics, natural production, I think we're just going to see quality continue to skyrocket. Yeah. Now let's leave wines for a second and let's talk about the hard stuff. Uh, many alcohols have botanicals in them mm. or are created from crops like barley mash or potatoes or whatever it is. What's happening in the liquor industry that's going to be changing and what's going to change along all those trails like the Kentucky Bourbon Trail and those types of things? Oh, the Kentucky Bourbon Trail is just a happy place, isn't it? I love it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, so, and I'm glad you brought this up because, you know, when people do think and talk about climate change as it pertains to uh, the world of beverage alcohol, I think the focus is often almost exclusively on wine, but the world of spirits is really being affected too. Uh, I have a chapter on American craft whiskey. 
uh, and, and American spirits in general. And I was speaking with uh, one of the master distillers for Sazerac. And the Sazerac company has many, many brands under its umbrella. It's worth you know, more money than I'll make in, in you know, three lifetimes. It's, it's a wonderful, big, great company. And I was talking to the distiller and he is in charge uh, of three of their gins, right? And this was last year. And he hmm. was telling me that because of an ill-timed storm in Southeast Asia that year, the crop for a number of the botanicals that he relies on historically for his gins just never happened that year. He couldn't get it. Wow. So he had to scour planet Earth, literally, to find the botanicals that he needed for his gins. And, you know, we all tend to forget, but these are businesses, too. Whether you're a large corporation like Sazerac or a small producer of craft spirits, it's still a business. So the question sure. then becomes, they're making, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of bottles, whatever it might be. Do they eat that added cost and lower their margins? Or oh, do they boy. pass that on to the consumer and risk selling less and damaging the brands in the future? So it's an issue when it comes even to commodity grains, right, which are in so many of the of the whiskeys and vodkas and gins that we love. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, we tend to think of commodity farm operations as pretty much immune from climate change. But things are getting so weird out there in the environment that there's all kinds of unusual viruses and insects and, you know, funguses and molds and storms. If there's a major issue on a commodity cereal grain farm in Saskatchewan, right, uh, or the upper Midwest, that all of a sudden is going to shift the prices a little bit of commodity huh. grains. It's all going to be getting passed down. So there's there are issues in the world of spirits as well. Is there one type of spirit that you see disappearing in the next couple of decades. No, I don't I don't see spirits, I don't see wine. I don't think these are going to disappear. I mean, we're, we're going to need them too badly right, with everything right. else that's going on. <laughs> well, well, I think we can all speak from those pandemic lockdowns. It was like Negroni time here at 3 oh, in the afternoon goodness. on a Tuesday, yeah. right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, so I I not only don't think that these things are going to disappear. They've been made for thousands of years. Um, things are going to shift Certainly, prices are absolutely going to fluctuate and, and you know, let's be honest, probably increase uh, at certain points in the future if they haven't already. But what I found as I was researching and reporting and writing this book is that the people who grow the grapes and grains and the people who make the wine and distill and blend the whiskey, these are people who are some of the most forward-thinking, smart hmm open-minded I've ever had the privilege of encountering. And I genuinely believe that these are going to be the folks who help point us in the right direction and teach us how to move forward in this crazy world. Um, you know, the truth is, Pauline, nobody gets into the world of wine or spirits because they have to, right? When's the last sure. time you spoke to someone like, like I, I get to write about wine and, and booze for a living and travel. <laughs> you should hang up on me if I say, Wow, I hate my job. That would be offensive, right? <laughs> nobody absolutely nobody says, Oh man, I I, I really don't want to have to make wine, right? I mean, maybe if you're the 30th generation of some family, you're you kind of got forced into it. But 99.9% people do this because they want to, because they're passionate about it. And that yeah. passion is absolutely being translated in the ways in which they are teaching the rest of us how to pivot, 
how to find a way forward. And they're still making incredibly exciting, incredibly delicious products that will help sustain us, pandemic or no, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Well, on that hopeful note, I want to thank you, Brian. This has been such an interesting conversation. Before I let you go, very quickly, beyond the Kentucky bourbon trail or whiskey trail, is there another trail in the U.S. since you, you, you travel all the time and that you would recommend to our listeners if they, if they want to do something cultural and uh, culinary like that or, or mixology based? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, <laughs> I think that the world of Texas whiskey right now is so exciting. Huh. Um, yes. I mean, there are some great producers. There's Garrison Brothers, Balcones, Milam and Green. Uh, so and many, they you know, do tours and tastings and all of that? Uh, yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, you know, TX, which is made by uh, Firestone and Robertson, some great producers in Texas. You'll eat brilliantly. Uh, you know, I can't recommend that highly enough. And also- Wait, wait before, I, before you leave that, Texas is huge. What part of Texas are you going to for this? So I'm going to head to Hill Country. Um, uh, okay. You know, in Hill Country, you're going to have Garrison Brothers. You're going to have Milam and Green. Uh, really big fans of what they're doing. Uh, and there's also some great wine happening there too. I'd also recommend the Pacific Northwest. Some of the whiskeys in Oregon right now, especially, uh, and the huh. gins uh, are very exciting. And that's a totally different culinary scene there. Equally great. Uh, strongly recommend heading up there too. Very cool. Thank you again, Brian. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is Tanya Fitzpatrick. She's been recognized as Black Travel Journalist of the Year. She is the co-founder of World Footprints, which is a socially conscious travel media platform that was founded on the unity principle of Ubuntu. I am because we are. We'll talk to her a little bit more about what that means. She's also a member of the Explorers Club, uh, the legendary Explorers Club. In fact, one of the few Black female members of that historic organization. Hey, Tanya, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Pauline. Well, we got reacquainted recently at the International Travel Show in New York City, where you were the moderator of a really fascinating panel on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the travel industry. Now, that was kind of geared more towards people in the travel industry, but I think it's important for travelers to know about those issues, uh, for travelers of color to know that Perhaps help is on the way, that things are changing. The same for LGBTQ travelers, for people with disabilities. Uh, I think that the travel industry is starting to understand the importance uh, of those uh, different uh, verticals, if that's the right word. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can you, you tell our, our listeners first, how many people are involved when you actually start addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, certainly. So I actually built that particular panel um, and another one on Consumer Day, uh, but I was very intentional when I built this panel 
not only did I want to show have a diverse panel, um, I wanted diversity within the tourism industry. And so I had uh, an attraction, an arts organization in MoMA, the um, Museum of yeah, that- Art. That was so impressive what they're doing. I love that. Absolutely. Uh, I had a DMO, um, a Destination, which is a Palm Springs. Sorry, Destination uh, Marketing Organization. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted a hotel company, and so Marriott joined, and a tour, uh, a tour operator, and Intrepid Travel joined. So I wanted to show what diverse organizations within the travel industry are doing for the travel community. And I think it's important that as travelers, we know about a lot of these initiatives, specifically emphasize the A in DEAI, uh, the A being for accessibility, because I think that's a conversation that's often overlooked. And, mm-hmm. and so I really you know, wanted to to showcase uh, all of these incredible initiatives so that we as travelers know where we may um, feel comfortable, may feel welcomed, may feel safe. And, you know, we, we talked about, we just mentioned MoMA and what they're doing um, with the expansion of the A category, accessibility, um, for the deaf community, for the blind community, for the autistic community, and for people with Alzheimer's, for older uh, museum goers. I was stunned to hear about the vast range of their programs and how welcoming they're being to so many communities who don't get welcomed to museums, really. Right, right. And and so, and I thought that was important. And, and I also had an ASL, American Sign Language Interpreter, there because I didn't know if uh, there would be uh, members of the deaf community in either uh, of the audience that um, I built for the Consumer Day panel and the Trade Day panel where where we connected. Um, but I wanted to, to at least cover that basis and show that, you know, we were walking the talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And so I thought that was important. And so for travelers, you know, it's important to know um, that you're welcomed at certain attractions or in certain uh, destinations or uh, within certain communities. And, and and safe. There, you know, as you know, there are countries, and there's one that's in the news right now a lot that is hosting the uh, the World Cup just starting. You know, huh. there are people who are not welcome there. The LGBTQ community, um, sure, know, that's a, that's a crime in this particular country, uh, and as well as other countries, and so. You know, even though the conversation about DEI is uh, a conversation within the travel industry, I think it's important for travelers, for those of us, you know, who are traveling, to understand how that uh, those conversations are impacting us. Right. Well, your Marriott representative said something very moving along those lines. He said, "We are per." 
purposefully training uh, Marriott employees to create safe spaces. So you may be going to a place where being gay is against the law, but once you go into that Marriott, they're not going to say to you, oh, why are you sharing a room with somebody of the same gender or what's your lifestyle? Instead, they're going to give you the privacy and they're going to protect your privacy on on that property, or, or they're going to try to, at least. I, I thought that was so surprising to hear that a vast corporation like Marriott was thinking along those lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and it, you know, adds to the conversation of the new element that um, I mentioned um, along the, the, the scope of DAI um, with the element B, a new letter has been added to that alphabet, B standing for belonging. And mm. so Marriott, you know, with a lot of their programs and, um, and frankly, all of the people who were represented on that panel, you know, they are adding to that conversation or, um, or amplifying the need to show belonging. It's, it goes beyond inclusivity. Inclusivity is being invited. The B is feeling welcomed. And so that is, you know, that's a, a standard that all of these organizations um, are, are working towards. So as a traveler who might be a person of color or might have a disability or might be on the LGBTQ spectrum, how do you know if the destination you're going to is going to be welcoming? How do you figure that out? Because there are certain places in the world that have a history of racism or that have a history of bigotry or intolerance. There, there are a couple of ways to, um, you know, to identify some of those places. Um, I can tell you for myself as a woman of color, you know, there are other resources out there. There are communities on Facebook with uh, uh, BIPOC, um, Black, Indigenous, people of color travelers where they, they will voice and critique, you know, various uh, destinations. Huh. Uh, there are things that I found on my own, uh, my husband and I, uh, <laughs> you know, on a camping trip. And my husband wrote an article about this, but there was a two locations in uh, the Outer Banks that we wanted to go to to camp during COVID. So this is 2020. We just really needed to to do something safe and camping was a safe bet. Uh, sure. And uh, there was one I really, really wanted to go to. Uh, it was on, and it was on the coast. And I'm, a, I'm a water baby, so give me a beach in the ocean, and I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy as a clam. But this particular place, after doing a little bit of research, we learned about stories of other black travelers and people of color feeling unwelcomed. Uh, there was a Confederacy flag that was allowed oh. to fly. Just as you entered the campground. And so we went to another place up the road and learned that that particular place barred those types of uh, imagery from their campground. And, you know, it wasn't on the water, uh, but it was safe and met some other, you know, great people, um, an Asian family, a Latino family, and we just really had a, a wonderful time. So it takes, you know, for people like us and, and for other people within the um, 
DEI communities, it takes a little bit of research and, and sometimes that's word of mouth. And, and then also, you know, look at some of the marketing materials as you remember Palm Springs, a Palm Springs re- um, representative mentioned that during a DEI conference she was attending, she was approached by a keynote, one of the keynote speakers at this particular conference, who came up to her and remarked on the advertising. I think they had a video or something, a marketing video for Palm Springs. And she's a black woman. And she said, you know, I saw myself in that video. Uh, and, and so because Palm Springs included diverse communities in their marketing materials, that made that woman feel welcome to to mm. visit Palm Springs when she had never been and had no desire to go because in her mind, that wasn't a place where she right. feel welcomed. But can travelers actually uh, trust those marketing materials? Couldn't it be that there are, are are people in the destination marketing organizations who are more progressive than the people in the community? H- how much can you trust marketing? Because I, I think it's amazing that we're seeing more diversity in marketing in travel. Mm-hmm. But does that reflect in reality what the trip will be like? Not, not always. And that's why we really encourage, we being my husband and I with uh, World Footprints, we really encourage people uh, to do what we call uh, ground truthing. Find your own truth on the ground. And we suggest that because we have learned through our travels, particularly when we've covered some of the Olympic Games uh, from Sochi, Russia and Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, you know, our narratives, our truths did not reflect the uh, the narratives that were being told in the media. And uh-huh. uh, and so, you know, as you know, as a person in this field, there is some fear mongering that uh, is part of uh, some organization's revenue model, you know, hmm. um, conflict breeds dollars and or it means dollars to to people. And yeah. Um, and so, you know, when when we had the Sochi Games in Ru- uh, in Russia, of course, that was right as Russia invaded Ukraine, and mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of concern for uh, safety of you know the athletes, et cetera. And we had decided to go anyways and see for ourselves. And I was really happy at that point to know that a country that I actually spent a little bit of time in, I lived for a summer in St. Petersburg. um, I have a heart for that country and the people. It Mm -hmm. it was was very, uh, it was wonderful to see how people came together, Ukrainians who came over to volunteer, even though their country was being invaded. Goodness. You know, it was, it was really, and, and I didn't feel unsafe. And, you know, and we went outside of the Olympic bubble because that's how we travel. We just wanted to experience that part of of Russia. And that was my husband's first time in Russia, but I, I wanted us to experience the country itself. And same with Brazil, you know, the narratives were the Zika mosquito and crime. Sure. 
course there's crime, but the Zika mosquito was concentrated in the northeast part of the country, nowhere near Rio de Janeiro. And but the news had had played so much or given so much attention to that. Yeah. That even athletes who had worked hard to qualify for those games were frightened to travel. Uh, to yeah. Rio. And so, you know, that's why I, you know, despite marketing, despite what you hear in social media, despite what you may see in the news and maybe well-meaning family and friends, see for yourself and, sure. and your own truth. Yes. Well, well, I asked you to pick a destination uh, that you'd want to talk about. And I was so surprised and pleased uh, to hear you wanted to discuss Ireland, uh, <laughs> which is one of my favorite places on the planet, just because of the incredible friendliness of the people there. You did a trip along a place, I think it was in uh, 2020. 20 or 2019, mm-hmm. the Wild Atlantic Way. We picked it as one of the top places in the world to see. I think it still is. And you found a very personal connection to Ireland. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, uh, so I was in Ireland um, with a few other journalists uh, for a social media campaign that had launched. And as part of that campaign, we were dispersed to different parts of the uh, the island, and some of us drove. I drove, and uh, and so I was given the uh, the task of venturing up a portion of the Wild Atlantic Way. It was basically concentrated in um, Donegal, the Donegal region, and I uh, went to a, a folk village called Lincolnsill. And and it's 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 a living history museum. Um, it ah. has that thatched cottages, a school, a grocer. I mean, a beautiful put together uh, village. And I happen to and it wasn't hokey. It was it was actually felt authentic and and not just for children. Because <laughs> there's another folk village in Ireland that we actually tell people to avoid. A different one, just because it's so damn hokey. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean. I, I, you know, I'm very sensitive about, about, you know, authenticity. And so I don't like these manufactured places, Uh, but uh, you know, it was as authentic as um, you could expect, you know, it was a living history museum, Um, wasn't really a lot of um, exhibits going on or, or, you know, people pushing hay or anything of, of that sort at that time at the time I was there in fact there was a film crew <laughs> there oh, wow <laughs> um, and I, I did try to photobomb but uh, <laughs> but I, I walked into um their visit, visitor visitor center and and store and I was you know I was talking to the woman behind the the cash register and as I happened to you know I, I talked to I'll say hi to a tree I, I like I like like talking to people and getting to know people. <laughs> and so I learned this woman's name was Margaret Cunningham. And I said, oh, I have an aunt named Margaret Cunningham. See, on my mother's side, I am a Cunningham. And, ah. uh, and so I happened to text my family and uh, ask them, you know, where does our family or the Cunninghams come from? And darned if they don't come from Donegal. And wow. 
I teased her. I said, oh, we could actually be family. And so we connected on Facebook. And a few months later, she showed a photograph of an uncle that she had recently lost. And I looked at this man and I swear he was a doppelganger for my Uncle Petey. He was a Caucasian man, my Uncle Petey's brown, but I swear, but for the hue of their skin, they 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 look so similar. And so I, I called her, I said, uh, I think we actually might be related. <laughs> wow. Did you do like a DNA test or or how did did you were you did you prefer, pursue that further? No, you know, it, well, it, no, and and this is why, um, Pauline, my Facebook account was hacked <laughs> oh. ago, and so I don't know how to contact her, but I, I think I may actually try contacting the village uh, now that I remember the name of the village I went to and see if she's still there and, and see if I can't find find a way to contact her if she's not still there. Uh, but How I, I, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was actually one of my favorite stories um, coming out of that particular trip. And so, you know, that that's a beauty of travel. You know, I, I, I believe so strongly that we all share a common humanity and we're all connected. And, you know, this is just kind of an example of the, the power of connectivity that uh, that you earn through travel. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you go to that part of Ireland too, beyond the human beings, it's also just one of the most gloriously beautiful parts of the world. You know, incredible cliffs, deep, deep green everywhere. I mean, it's it's just an extraordinary place to visit. Yeah, and just the history, you know, the mythology, the the you know, the Irish folklore. There's there's just so much rich cultural experiences that that country offers. And of course, you know, the the landscape. And I think most people know about uh, the Cliffs of Moher, but I happened to discover Sleeve League Cliffs. Have you, hmm. have you been? I have not been. <gasps> Tell us about them. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, they're three times, these cliffs are three times higher than the Cliffs of Moher. And wow. um, yeah, it's a hike. I mean, uh, to where your lungs are burning when you're hiking up the hill. It, <laughs> uh, it was an incredible hike. Um, but the, the beauty is you get up to the top of, you know, these, the, the cliff and there's, you look over into a, um, a, a cove and hmm. there's a, a beautiful rock formation that I, I specifically went to capture. It's called God's Table. And the rock formation looks like a table and a chair. And it is just amazing. And then you there's an, a path where you can hike up even higher and hmm. actually in the clouds. And wow. I tell you, I was so spent by the time I made it to the top of the mountain. Um, I just, I could not, you know, I went up maybe another... 50 feet or so. And I, and I, and I had to give it, give it up because I had that big long walk back down the, the hill as well. What a great discovery. Cause you know, one of the disappointments of the cliffs of more, if we're going to be frank is you cannot see them in peace. I mean, it's a total crowd scene because everybody knows about the cliffs of more. So instead you go to the sleeve league, Chris cliffs. Yeah, uh, I guess. 
And it's hard to find. Uh, I had a, a nice GPS and it took me, I mean, I can't tell you how many circles I, I, <laughs> I, I drove around this little town to find the entrance. And I finally found it. I don't know how. Finally found it, found the parking structure. And then, you know, went through the gate that's kind of closed um, for, for cars. And so I thought, okay, I have to park here and walk up this hill. And I uh, come to find out I could have driven up uh, all that, you know, and saved myself the uh, the steps. Um, right. And the, and the lumber. <laughs> um, oh, well. But, you know, it's part of the, it's part of the story now. And, but it, you know, it's so, so worth it. So worth it. Absolutely beautiful. And I agree with you on the Cliffs of Moore. It's, it's too commercialized. A lot, but a, and a lot of people do not know about Sleeve League. And that's, you know, one of the benefits of going up there. And instead of all of the, the kiosk and the stores that Cliffs of Moore have, there's this one little fellow with a, you know, a, a little table and he had magnets and things of that. <laughs> one little vendor all the way at the top. <laughs> wow. Wow. And he was probably happy to see you because he probably doesn't get that many people each day. Right, right. Maybe a handful of people, but uh, but you, you know you don't want to be in those types of crowds and um, and, and attempt to enjoy the landscape. It's not possible. So. No, absolutely, absolutely. Well, you've brought Ireland alive, and and thank you so much for this fascinating discussion. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And that's it for this week's show. I want to say happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners. Because of the holiday, I'm going to be taking next week off. But I always say to those who are traveling, and I think probably that's a lot of people this week. Uh, So to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you in a week and a half.